Habakkuk. It's in the Old Testament. So if you go to Revelation, you've gone too far. If you've gone to Genesis, you've also gone too far the other way. So Habakkuk. <laughs> Brian just made a terrible joke. It's in, I'm not even going to repeat it. Okay. <laughs> Say what? Yeah, basically. Basically. The book of Habakkuk. <clears throat> While you're going there, since I know it might take a little bit of time to find, no shame in going to the front and finding what page number it is. Um, I think one of my favorite uh, stories from all of history is uh, the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, if you're familiar with that, it's more uh, widely known as uh, 300, right? If you guys have seen the movie, 300 Spartans, which isn't completely historically accurate. There's actually, there were only 300 Spartans, but there were about six to 7,000 total troops there. So they had a little more than what the movies portray. Uh, but they fought this giant army of Persians. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Persians that uh, invaded. And uh, they were coming through. They were going to come through this, um, this area, this pass known as Thermopylae or Hot Springs, uh, the Hot Pass. Uh, they were coming through it. And uh, the Spartans went out to meet them, and uh, several days of battling, uh, eventually all those 6,000 or 7,000 uh, Greek soldiers died, including the 300 Spartans, inclu including King Leonidas. Uh, and at, at the beginning, it seems like, okay, why, why did they suffer? What was the point of that suffering, right? If you just studied that battle you would wonder, what's the point of their suffering, their death, right, as they suffered to uh, at the hands of these hundreds of thousands of Persians? Uh, well, when we look later on into history, after this war lasted several years, um, we see that, uh, first of all, they killed tens of thousands of Persians, this huge number, uh, right? If you guys watch the movie 300, which I don't recommend, FYI. So, um, but if you do watch that movie, there are a ton. Uh, they they make it seem like they killed like a million soldiers. There were a lot of soldiers that they killed, and eventually, what it led to was uh, Athens, which was uh, another city in Greece, was able to come in and defeat. Uh, eventually, defeat the the Persian fleet, and they sent the Persians off, and Greece was not conquered. All because these three hundred men suffered and died. They never got to see the fruit of that, right? <laughs> And so we wonder at first, at the beginning, why, why go through that suffering? What was the point of that? But at the end, right after several years, we can look back on history and see the point of that suffering in order to win, to win that war. Right? And Habakkuk addresses some of these issues. Like, why suffering? Now, God's not going to answer all those questions. Uh, Habakkuk is also going to help us kind of see how God's sovereignty God's rule over all things works together with suffering. And it's not going to answer all the questions that you may have. Because right? probably all of us have, have gone through suffering. I know we've talked about suffering a lot as we've, as we've gone through First uh, Peter. Uh, but we're going to continue talking a little more about suffering. All of us have gone through some extent of suffering in here. And, and if we live long enough, uh, the, all of us will continue to go through suffering here until Jesus returns. And that's just the reality of the world. And Habakkuk deals with some of those realities. Habakkuk goes straight into these questions. He's going to question God, and it almost seems like he's being blasphemous. It almost seems like, well, Habakkuk, how dare you ask those questions? But we're going to see God's answer and how God helps him see the truth and the beauty of his sovereignty and of who he is. 
So as you're in Habakkuk, we're going to read. Before we do that, let's go ahead and pray again. King Jesus, God, as we open your word now, God, I pray that you would help us see the beauty of your words, the beauty of what you did even 2,500 years ago as this letter, this book, this, this happening between this prophet and you happened and is written down for us. God, would you open up our eyes and our hearts to see your majesty and to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's not much background given on Habakkuk, by the way. Some, some uh, of the minor prophets will give some background on their life or the meaning of their name. Uh, Habakkuk's not really known because it, it wants us to go straight into this conversation that's written down. So this happened in about 600 B.C., um, so just to give you some context on that, uh, this happened uh, around the time when, or right before the time, when Babylon was going to come and conquer Judah. So if you guys know history, and this is important uh, because we're going to learn a little bit about Babylon, uh, Israel split into two kingdoms, right, after Solomon's reign, the northern kingdom known as Israel and the southern kingdom known as Judah. The, the northern kingdom was wicked long before Judah was, and they went to uh, captivity to Assyria a couple hundred years before this happened. So they're already in captivity. So as uh, Habakkuk is prophesying, as he's a prophet, he is in Judah, and they have lasted a little longer, but now there's this wickedness that's starting to happen. And God is going to tell him what is going to happen. And as Babylon, which is this wicked, wicked nation at this point, they're, they're called the Chaldeans in here, but just so you know, Chaldeans equals Babylon's, uh, Babylonians. It's the same thing. So Babylon is going to come and capture them. He prophesied, by the way, if you want to line up some biblical history, um, he prophesied along with Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Habakkuk were all kind of written at the same time talking about some of the same issues. So let's go right in. We're going to look at the first two chapters today. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So it starts off right here, oracle. Oracle means burden. Right, the, the literal meaning of that is burden. So here's this burden that Habakkuk not only has, but saw. He saw this burden, and he and we get to see this, this deep, intimate conversation between he and God, um, because God, as we'll see in chapter 2, told him to write it down. And we see this conversation, this struggle that Habakkuk has. So try to resonate with him. So we should see automatically that the tone that is being set in this book is heaviness, this burden Right? Don't raise your hand, but have you ever felt burdened? Right? Have you ever felt this weightiness, this heaviness, that life is crashing down on you? We all have. We've all been there. And Habakkuk helps, helps make sense, or at least helps us trust in God more as we battle and go through suffering and difficulty and pain. Verse 2. O Lord, and here's Habakkuk speaking, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So he starts to complain about Judah, right? He's starting to see this wickedness. They've had this wicked king, Jehoiakim, and he's done these wicked, terrible, awful things. And now Habakkuk's saying, Lord, how long are you looking idly, right? This sounds almost blasphemous, right? Like 
God, you're not even looking. Do you even see? Do you even see what's going on? Justice isn't even happening. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So he's, he's asking these questions of God, begging for an answer. Why are these things happening? Right, that's the question so often we hear why. In fact, this year at youth camp, that's the, that's the theme is why. Why does suffering happen? Why does pain happen? Why does wickedness happen? Why does it seem like justice is overlooked and justice does not happen? This is the question of our day, right? We see this over and over and over again throughout the world, in our own country, and in your own lives. It seems like justice and suffering and pain permeate our world. Why do those things happen? So this is what Habakkuk is asking. Now, if you're looking for a direct answer to that why, you may be disappointed with the book of Habakkuk. Right? Habakkuk himself is a little disappointed at the beginning with God's answer. But we'll see how that leads him to a deeper trust in God. The, the answer to why shouldn't be our main focus here, but rather to the one who holds the whys in his hand. To Jesus. Let's look at that. So here's his first question. Why are these things happening? He's questioning his ability. How can you be fully good, fully good, and fully sovereign? But this, and this isn't a new philosophy, right? Epicurus, if you guys are familiar with him, he was a 4th century BC philosopher. He brought up this question, right? He basically stated, Epicurus, that it's known as the Epicurean philosophy. God cannot be fully good and fully powerful. Right? So he basically said this. This was, this was a popular teaching for a long time and still is coming back. He said, either God is fully good and he's not fully powerful, or God is fully powerful and he's not fully good. Right? And it, it seems like, okay, that's an old philosophy. People don't really think that way anymore. Well, they do. Uh, there's a quote by Luther. Not Martin Luther, Lex Luther, Superman's uh, arch nemesis. In the 2016 movie, Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, he brings this up, right? So it seems silly, like this is just a, a, a movie, right? Batman versus Superman wasn't even that good of a movie. Uh, but Lex Luthor says this to Superman. He says, I figured out way back, if God is all-powerful, he cannot be all-good. And if he is all-good, then he cannot be all-powerful, and neither can you be. Right? So this philosophy comes into this movie just four years ago, right? And people are talking about it. The internet's blowing up about it, right? And, and, and this is the question that so many people are asking. Can God be both fully good and fully powerful? And this is exactly what Habakkuk is asking 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago. He's asking this question. Can God, if you are fully good, and fully powerful, why is this wickedness happening? Why is there evil all around? And most of us ask this question, usually at two levels. One at the world level, right? If you watch any amount of news, you will start to ask this question, why does wickedness happen? That question is a little easier to ask than in your own life. That's the more difficult question. To, when suffering and pain and injustice happens in your own life, and you ask that why, that comes from a deep burden. That's what Habakkuk is asking here, not just at a world level, but he knows that there's wickedness happening to him, to his family, to his own people. And God, why is this injustice happening? Here's God's first answer. Verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. So God shifts this, right? Notice the shift, right? God, Habakkuk was saying, uh, God, do you not see? And now God reverses that and says, Habakkuk, you look, you see, right? 
Notice also, God does not reprimand Habakkuk for asking this question. God doesn't say, Habakkuk, how dare you ask a question like this, right? Rather, he answers it. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their own God. Notice something that's key here. Hopefully you picked up on this. Verse 6, behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Who's talking here? God. So who's the one raising up this wicked nation? God. So God is, is sovereign, fully fully sovereign, in control. He's raising up. So, so Habakkuk is saying, hey, this, my nation of Judah is wicked. And God says, oh yeah, I know. I've seen since the beginning of time. And I'm raising up the Babylonians who are going to go destroy you. The Babylonians were wicked, torturous, evil people. I mean, verse, verses 7 through 11 kind of explain how fearsome they were. This army was. And God says, I'm, I know there's wickedness. And instead of comforting Habakkuk, right? What the answer we want to hear from God so often is, is, oh yeah, you know what? It's, it's all going to be okay. God says, no. Okay, yeah, I know. I'm sending a nation to go and destroy you guys almost, right? Going to punish you, which they don't. They are not fully destroyed. But verse 6 clearly tells us it is God doing the work. He's the one raising it up. But verse 11 says, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their own God. God's raising them up. God is also not to blame for wickedness. We have to get this in our mind. We have to leave a space in our mind. We have to create this, that God is fully sovereign and uses wickedness for his purposes, but God is never to blame for wickedness. Kind of like the Trinity, you and I can't really explain that. I don't understand how that works, but over and over and over again, we see that in Scripture. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. There is not one purpose of God that will not happen. We could go the opposite of that, and when wicked things happen, we could say, you know, if we were to ask God, God, was that your purpose? And he would say, no, that wasn't my purpose. Well, then Isaiah 46 would be lying. That means part of God's purpose would not be done. God uses wickedness and, and the sin of this world for his purposes. God is never to blame for sin. I think Acts chapter 4 is, is the place that we see this most uh, clearly. Acts four twenty-seven and 28 says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, which is killing the Son of God, right? The greatest sin, essentially, that you could commit, right? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Men are to blame for killing the Son of God. God predestined it to take place. God is not to blame for 
wickedness, right? We don't understand how those things work together. God is fully sovereign, never to blame for wickedness. God is fully sovereign, fully good. He uses wickedness. I mean, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's not just talking about good kings. It's wicked kings as well. We have to start creating in our mind this space to recognize that God is fully sovereign, but yet is never to be blamed for wickedness or evil. Man is. And so if the Babylonians are this mighty, how great is our God? He controls them. Right? This is the point that we should get from that. The Babylonians are this mighty army. Verses 7 through 11 explain that to us. Yet God controls even them. How much mightier is our God? No one is surprising God. No country, no ruler, no amount of evil and sinfulness and wickedness surprises God. God is still in control. No one is more powerful than he is. And the more we trust that, the less we will ask why and the more we will rest in him. But it's not always that simple, right? Habakkuk's not necessarily happy with this answer. Look at verse 12. Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. He's remembering God's promise to his people. We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So if we stop there, we think, okay, Habakkuk gets it. Habakkuk is is feeling better about God's answer, right? But this is really Habakkuk's own battle in his mind. Have you ever had that battle, that struggle where you go back and forth like, yeah, God, I, I trust you, but God, still, why does this happen, right? This is kind of, we're seeing inside of Habakkuk's head almost as he's saying these things. Because then in verse 13, he shifts. Verse 13, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So Habakkuk is recognizing that God is in control, but he's wondering, he's questioning, God, why are you punishing the less evil with the more evil? Have you ever asked that question, why does do the, the lesser evil or the more righteous tend to suffer than the less righteous or the more evil? And this is the exact question that Habakkuk is asking. God, why is this lesser evil being punished by the greater evil? God's going to come back and answer that question. Because right off the bat, we have to think, we're all wicked. We're all in the same spot. This is where Habakkuk even had a wrong view of, of more righteous and less righteous, of less evil and more evil. When we start to realize that, when we start to think, like, we are no better off than any amount of evil in this world, then we will start to see the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. So, we, so this is a reminder, God creates all things. God can do with his creation whatever he wants. Verse 15, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them. This he's talking about is now the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. In other words, he's, he's worshiping his strength, right? Babylon, uh, Babylon is worshiping its strength of its army. <clears throat> For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and merciless killing, mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning 
my complaints. The first thing we see here is, as uh, chapter 2, verse 1 tells us, is that we should run to God with our problems, right? Habakkuk, it seems like we tend to think, like, Habakkuk, can you really talk to God like that? But when we look at what Habakkuk is asking, we look at the, the weightiness of the problems, we look at his heavy heart, we see he's not running to other things. He's running to God. So ask yourself, when you go through suffering and pain and difficulty and you see injustice, where are you running? Too often the things we run to are our careers, our families, Fox News, a president. We put our hope in those things. That will never satisfy us. Habakkuk here shows great wisdom in running to God. God and God alone is what will satisfy your soul. God and God alone is the one who holds all your wise, the one who sees the injustice, right? He's not an, a, an unseen God. We're going to see that here in a little bit. And the one who loves you more than anyone in this world. Run to him with, with problems, right? Ask him difficult questions. God never reprimands Habakkuk for asking these questions, because God knows that through these questions, through God answering him, he is going to have a deeper faith and a worshipful heart at the end of this, as we'll see next week as we go through Habakkuk chapter 3. Are we focused on God? Look at God's answer in verses 2 through 5. Habakkuk 2, starting in two, verse, or chapter 2, or verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So God is telling him, hey, write this down, Habakkuk, so that you can wait on my words. You can trust, and you can know my words will come true. There's not a single word from God that has not come true. Or will not come true. God has never failed. God has never lied. All of his word has happened and will happen. It will come to pass. He says, wait for it. And God's timing is not like ours, right? I mean, even even as uh, Habakkuk is writing this, it's, it's probably somewhere between 605 B.C. and 609 B.C. Uh, Judah wasn't captured until 586 B.C. So you're talking about like 20 years which to us seems like, man, he's waiting 20 years. What's Habakkuk so worried about? He's got 20 years before he's captured, right? God's timing is not like ours. God is patient. We're not. God sees the end. In fact, Isaiah 46 tells us he declares the end. He declares the beginning. He's the one speaking it into existence. And he's the one controlling it. And so his timing is not like ours. He's, he's telling us here, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God's word will come to pass. And then we see verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up, talking about the Babylonians. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So here he answers Habakkuk's question in Chapter 1, verse 13, where Habakkuk is saying, God, why does it seem like the, the more evil people are punishing, you're using more evil people to punish the lesser evil? And so God acknowledges Babylon is evil. He says, yeah, his soul is puffed up, and it's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. He doesn't say, yeah, Habakkuk, you guys are more righteous. You guys have done better works. It's like, this is the only way to be made righteous. 
So essentially what God is telling him is, you have a wrong view, Habakkuk. You think that you're more righteous because your works are better? No, the righteous, the only way to be made righteous is by faith. This verse is, is the verse that sparked, um, sparked the Reformation. So Luther said of this, not Lex Luther. Now we're talking about Martin Luther again. Martin Luther <coughs> said this. This text was to me the true gate of paradise. Right? Martin Luther, this Catholic monk who uh, would beat himself constantly to try to earn his righteousness, and he struggled. Like, God, am I good enough? And then he saw this text and saw that the righteous shall live by faith. And he says, this text was to me the true gate of paradise. This is the only way. This is the only way to be found righteous in Christ, to have faith and to rest in him alone. This is quoted three times in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, in Galatians chapter 3, and in Hebrews chapter 10. And so the New Testament authors, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, kind of redefine this for us and show what it means that the righteous live by faith. Romans 1 tells us that this faith trusts in the gospel message. This is a faith that says, I'm putting all my rest on the work that Christ did on the cross. And the work that he did is he conquered Satan's sin and death for me. This faith is one that says, I'm not trusting in my own righteousness alone. It's not about how much money I can give or how often I don't cuss or how much I come to church or how many good things I can do, but rather the fact that I am sinful beyond belief, but Christ loves me beyond belief and he died for me. I love the way Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, says it. He says, you are more wicked than you know but you are also more loved than you know. You and I are wicked. We are rebellious. We have rebellious hearts that constantly rebel against the king, the God of the universe. So the king came down from his throne to rescue you and I. And this kind of faith trusts in that message so that when we stand before the throne at the end of time, we don't say, hey, look how many good things I did. Look how many sermons I preached. Look how often I was at church. Look how many good things I did. Look how many bad things I didn't do. You know what that leads to? That leads to hell. I love the, the way Russell Moore says it. He says, Sodom and Gomorrah leads to hell just as much as Mayberry does. In other words, you can be as good and look great on the outside, and it still leads to the same hell. The only way you are made righteous is through Christ, through Christ alone. Are we resting in the gospel message? Galatians 3 tells us that this kind of faith trusts not in your own obedience to the law, but rests in Christ's righteousness. In other words, not about keeping all the law. So as you're reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the point that you should be getting out of those texts as we're reading together is not, oh man, can't trim the edge of my beard. I got to do better about this. The point that we should be getting out of this is that God is good and that Christ has made atonement for me. And now I want to obey. Right? Grace-driven obedience is what we look for. Never law-driven obedience. Because law-driven obedience leads to being a Pharisee and leads to hell. Grace-driven obedience. When you recognize the great grace that Christ has shown you and I, that he has forgiven every one of your sins, every sin that you have committed and every sin that you will commit, and you trust in that, then you will desire to obey, saying, now I want to obey him, not because I have to earn something, but because he loves me and he's shown me grace. Law leads to hell. 
The law is like a mirror. J.D. Greer uses a beautiful illustration, I think. The law is like a mirror that shows us our flaws. So let's say you were looking in a mirror and you saw like this, this speck in your tooth, right? You get like those green things in your tooth, teeth all the time. And let's say you were to take the mirror and try to take that thing out of your tooth with the mirror. That would be dumb, right? Right? Can we acknowledge? Let me see, I see like MJ, thank you. Okay, yes, that would be dumb. And that's what we try to do with the law. We look at the law, J.D. Greer says it like this, we look at the law and we think, oh man, I have to do better. I'm not keeping these things. So now i got to try to do better and try to keep the law again. The law, the mirror, does not lead to righteousness in Christ. Galatians 3 is clear about that. Only trusting and resting in the gospel message and the fact that Christ's righteousness is enough will lead to eternal life. And then we walk in obedience to Christ because of the grace he's shown us, not to earn the grace. And Hebrews 10 tells us that this kind of faith endures suffering while trusting God's good plan. We entrust ourselves to a faithful creator, Peter tells us in 1 Peter. Trusting him to take us through suffering. That's what this kind of faith that God is telling Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Rest in him and him alone, Christian. Verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor. Another word for wine would be like uh, wealth (coughs) or greed. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And then he works his way into these five woes. So we've seen Habakkuk's complaint, God answers. Habakkuk has a second complaint, God answers again. And now God enters into these five woes to the Babylonians. And we think, okay, what do those five woes have to do with us? They, one, he's going to make two great statements here. And two, each of those five woes should be should serve as a warning to us because we trust in Christ, because we walk by faith. We don't want to do these things, not out of law-based obedience, but grace-based obedience. Verse 6, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him, saying, and here's the first woe, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake who, uh, who awake, who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. So the Babylonians are, are taking these people and basically holding them captive by what they owe them. Debtors, these debt collectors. Right, you guys ever get those calls and want to read this verse to them? Right? I get those debt collect calls all the time. Uh, I want to just say, you know what? No, I'm just kidding. He's not talking about that. But this is a warning to Babylon, and it should be a warning for us not to go after greed. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. In other words, these walls will cry out and show that you have gained wealth from wickedness. So God is telling these woes to Babylon, even though he's in control of Babylon, right? Again, God is not to be blamed for Babylon's wickedness. Babylon is. God is controlling Babylon, right? We have to make a space in our brain to know that those two things work together, even though we can't understand God is in control. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. 
And here's, here's, we're going to focus here on verse 13 and 14 for a minute. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? In other words, doesn't God, isn't God the one who makes nations just do things that don't matter? Isn't God the one making Babylon weary themselves for nothing? That's a hard thing to come to, to mind with, the focus. Like, God is the one controlling. Right? If we were to put that in, in our terms today, like, like, is it not God who makes North Korea do what they do? Is it not God who makes Iran do what they do? That is a mind-blowing thing. And you and I will never be able to, to fully comprehend that. That God can be fully good and fully sovereign and completely in control. God is the one doing this work. And then verse 14 gives us what we should focus on. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How much of the sea is water? All of it, right? The waters cover the sea. All the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And we look forward to that day. The Lord is in control. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day all will know Christ. One day all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Notice God does not answer this question for Habakkuk. Right? He's not saying, hey, here's why I'm sending Babylon. Rather, he says, look forward to the day when all the earth is filled with the knowledge of my glory. That day has not come yet, Christian. But it will. Christ has already ushered in the kingdom and is working. Right? And it doesn't seem that way. Right? If we were to look in our world today, it would probably look a lot like what Habakkuk is seeing. And, and it would seem like, wow, the wickedness and the disease and, and the poverty and the, the injustice that happens in our world. God, are you still working? But Jesus still promises that the church will prevail and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are defensive, not offensive, right? The church is marching against the gates of hell and Satan will not win. Satan has already been disarmed. So just like we talked about a couple weeks ago, yeah, we have a, a lion in an enemy who's roaming around, but he's been disarmed according to Colossians 2.15. So we have a toothless lion roaming around because Christ has already conquered him, because Christ has already crushed the head of the serpent. And we, one day we look forward to the day when all the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and all the suffering and all the pain will be worth it. As we'll sing here in a minute, the calm will be the better for the storms that we endured. It's like, I mean, we've had some nice spring days lately, so it's like coming out of winter. I hate winter, FYI. Um, so sorry if you guys like that. You guys are weird. But um, uh, I do not like the cold. I love the warm weather. And so these last few days have been beautiful. And it's like when you come out of winter and get to spring, you kind of forget the bitterness of winter, Right? If you guys had the flu, all five of my family members had the flu, including me twice, and it was rough. But these last few days, it's like those are just a distant memory. That's a lot like what this day is going to be. When Christ comes back, I heard someone describe it one day, uh, like it's going to be like waking up from a bad dream to the beautiful reality of Christ. All the suffering and the pain will be worth it. 
Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that not only will we know the glory of Christ, but we will experience the glory. We will have glory for the suffering that we, do, that we endured. I mean, Paul uses the word momentary affliction. This light momentary affliction is nothing in comparison with the weight of glory that you and I will experience, that you and I will get for the suffering and the pain that we endured. It will be worth it. Continue on, Christian, and look forward to the day when Christ comes back and all the earth will know him. Those who have rejected him and those who have followed him will see the beauty and the glory of Christ. Let's finish up here. Chapter 2, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and other shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in him. In other words, God sees the wickedness, and God will make it right. God is just. And those who are not in Christ, whose wrath has not been drunk in the cup, I'm sorry, my West Texas came out there drinking. The, all the, whose wrath has not been drunk from the cup, who Jesus' blood has not covered, will face the eternal wrath of God. And while that should break our hearts, that also gives us hope that God sees our injustice. God is not an unseeing God. He is our seeing God who's in his holy temple, as we'll see in a minute. Verse 18, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So he acknowledges the Babylonians will be wicked, but God is in his holy temple. Christian, you will go through suffering. You will go through pain. Probably injustice will happen to you. But Christ is on his throne. God is in his holy temple. He is seeing all things that are happening. He's controlling the things that are happening, and he will make it right one day. And all the world will be silent before him. Right? No one's going to be able to say anything in the presence of God as we see his throne. No one can say, hey, I disproved you through science. Or, hey, these other gods, I rejected uh, you so that I could follow them. Or, hey, my whole culture said uh, atheism was real and there's no such thing as God. Or, hey, I did all these good things. I cast out demons and prophesied in your name. No one will be able to say those things. Let all the earth stand silent before him. God is in his holy temple. He sees. He's in control. And though you don't understand, trust him. We trust God because we'll stand silent before him. We'll read Psalm 130, and then we'll be done. A lot of psalms... uh, resonate with Habakkuk, with what Habakkuk's talking about. For example, and it's on the extra reading this week for uh, Sunday School Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph, sounds a lot like this. But I think Psalm 130 kind of sums it up well. I'm going to read that. 
O Lord, hear my voice. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You and I are only redeemed in Christ. Our only hope is Christ. So we trust, we walk by faith and not by sight. The righteous shall live by faith, trusting that God sees. He sees the wickedness and the injustice that is done to you. And he's in his holy temple in control. And one day, as verse 14 of chapter 2 tells us, all the earth will know, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And will see his beauty. And it will be like walking out into a spring day from the bitterness of cold behind you. And never again will you suffer. As Jesus conquers the great Babylon. Go read Revelation 17 and 18. As the great Babylon, as all wickedness falls and is cast into the lake of fire. And we, as the bride of Christ, together worship Jesus for eternity. That's the hope we look forward to, Christian. You will never be able to answer the question of, can God be fully good and fully sovereign? Other than yes, because we trust it, we'll never be able to fully explain it. Philosophy doesn't explain that to us. God's word does. And we trust in him. We rest in him. We wait for him. We hope in him. And one day, even though probably not all your questions of why did I go through the suffering will be answered on this earth, one day you will know. And that light momentary affliction will be worth it because you'll experience an eternal weight of glory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word in Habakkuk. God, as we'll see next week in chapter 3, I pray that we would respond like Habakkuk. Not with more questions, not with God, you didn't answer my question fully, but rather with worship. Knowing that if everything is stripped away, you are enough. Jesus, help us to know that. God, I pray that we would live by faith, not trusting in our own righteousness, but in yours, trusting in the gospel message alone. We know that you're in control. You're on your throne. You see from your holy temple. God, one day the entire earth will be filled with the knowledge of you. God, so while we wait for that day, I pray that we would go, we would proclaim, we would do good works not to earn salvation, but because we've been saved, we would do good works so that others would see you and glorify you. And we would proclaim with our mouths that you have come, that you have died, that you have made a way, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that you conquered Satan, sin, and death, and are now ascended on your throne, as Brian prayed earlier, seated because your work is done. Jesus, focus our eyes on you and on you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Response is this. If you have suffered, gone through pain, you're welcome to come pray. Here, pray where you're at. Pray that your heart would trust Christ more. And even though your wise may not be answered, that you would trust the one who holds your wise in his hand.